www.kcbc.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we are thrilled that you are with us. And uh, this is an opportunity uh, for you to ask questions about life, about ministry, about current events, about a passage of the Bible that you're studying, and you have questions on it, if we can help by God's grace, we will answer you from the Scripture in terms of what God's counsel would be. There's several ways, again, in which you can reach us directly here at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at net, and that will allow you to email us directly here into the studio, or you can call us directly here. Uh, and the uh, toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP 980, or the uh, South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859. If you call live, and we have a, a lot of live callers uh, most weeks, and especially here at election time, uh, people have questions in that realm as well. Uh, but if you have a specific question, you can go on the air live and we'll give you priority. Or you can simply dictate your question again at 843-525-1859. Well, with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor. We uh, had a question from Bert in Savannah who uh, wants to discuss Deuteronomy 720. It says in that passage, it talks about God sending the hornet after them. And in Joshua 24, 12, uh, has God sending out the hornet to drive out the two kings of the Amorites? It's clear that Yahweh orchestrated the sending, this person writes, but what exactly did he send? And could you help reconcile the plural hornets, they, versus the singular hornet, it? Okay, uh, great question. So there are three critical passages. I call them hornet passages when you deal with this subject. One is in Exodus one is in Deuteronomy, and the third is in Joshua, where Joshua says God did exactly what he said. He fulfilled it. So you've really got to put the three together to get a clear answer. So let me go first to the Exodus 23 passage. Behold, I am going to send forth an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before them and obey uh, his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. So uh, this is no ordinary angel. Uh, again, sometimes when an angel is mentioned, a malach, it's just a messenger, a servant of God. Uh, but this angel is further qualified as my angel. And if you took my course on angelology, I go through most, if not all, the passages that deal with the angel of the Lord. 
Um, this is the angel of the Lord, whom, of course, you see throughout the Exodus as he leads uh, God's people with a pillar of fire during the day and um, or during the night and a, and a cloud by the day. And so God is reminding them, excuse me, the terms of the covenant. If you truly obey his voice and do all I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hivites, and so forth. Then he warns, verse 24, you shall not worship their gods nor serve them. Verse 25, but you shall serve the Lord your God. He'll bless you if you do. Again, very similar to the Deuteronomy Deuteronomy covenant of 28 to 30. Um, There will be no miscarrying or barren in your land and so on. And then here's the verse in question. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you came. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, and so forth. And I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may uh, not become desolate. So again, it's a promise. Uh, The angel of the Lord is going to use uh, terror, and he's going to send hornets that will drive the people into confusion. Now, if you've ever been bitten by a hornet, it's a miserable sting. It's no fun at all. Uh, some years ago I was uh, weed eating in my backyard and I, I hit not a hornet's nest, but yellow jackets. And I'm telling you probably, I, I know I had over 30 bites and I was just running for the house. And it feels like you've been hit with a baseball oh, bat. Man, I was just like all over me. I'm glad I didn't have any kind of an allergy, but I had over 30 stings and I was miserable for a couple of hours. And of course, more recently they have these killer hornets that have hit the United States. And yesterday there was a news piece on those in terms of trying to dispose of the first nest that they have found. So then you come into Deuteronomy chapter seven. And again, there's reference in verse 20, moreover, the Lord, your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. Uh, You shall not dread them for the Lord, your God is in your midst. So Again, you've got these three major passages, and the one in Joshua 24, 12 says it happened. So what are these hornets, and why the singular versus a plural, which is one of your questions? Well, some have said the hornets refer to Egyptian armies that have attacked um, you know, Canaan before the conquest. That, that's just nonsense. That's just a liberal explanation on how to uh, argue out the miraculous. Others have said that they refer, you know, figuratively to the panic that was experienced by the people of Canaan. I I don't think so. These are actual real hornets that God sent on the land. There's no other possible explanation. Here's a good rule of thumb. When the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense or you will come up with nonsense. And so these are literal hornets. This is the miraculous hand of God. And by the way, there are poisonous hornets in the Middle East to this day that live in the ground. And if disturbed, they'll, they'll swarm like an army. And uh, they are no fun when you get bit by them. And some people have died from them. And so this is the miraculous. This is the terror of God. And of course, the hornet singular versus the plural is just a collective noun. And it's done throughout the Hebrew Old Testament 
where the Hornet here refers to, you know, the it's a title becomes of 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 the actual hornets that will come upon the enemies of Israel, and God will use this to give His people a victory. So it's it's not rocket science. It's just the plain reading of the text, and there's no reason to take these as symbolic or metaphorical or anything, because um, God is throughout the Exodus did all kinds of miracles on behalf of the nation of Israel, whether it's, um, you know, splitting the Red Sea or allowing their clothing and their shoes not to wear out during the years of wandering, just miracle after miracle after miracle. But the liberals who want to discount the miraculous will come up with all kinds of explanations that just are not true and faithful to God's word. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Heidi from Washougal, Washington writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. My question is in regards to the rapture and its timing. I know you are of the belief that the church will be taken before the tribulation starts. I've listened to your teachings from Daniel and Revelation, as well as other Bible teachers on this subject, to try and obtain as much knowledge and understanding on the topic as possible. I very much want to believe that the church will be taken before the tribulation starts, But there are two things that keep me from fully embracing the pre-trib rapture. First, 2 Thessalonians 2.3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's from the ESV. The simple reading of this verse seems to indicate an order in which events must take place before we are gathered to Christ, spoken of in verse uh, 2.1. How is this verse not taken as a list of events that must take place before we are raptured? Secondly, the word tribulation used in Scripture is translated from two different Greek words, philipsis versus orge, in Matthew 24, 21 and 29, Matthew 13, 19 and 21, Revelation 2, 22 and Revelation 7, 14. The word tribulation is translated from the Greek word philipsis, which can also mean affliction, persecution, trouble, suffering, hardship. I don't see orge or wrath in reference to the Great Tribulation until Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Both of these have kept me from embracing the pre-trib rapture and have me leaning more to a rapture between the sixth and seventh seal right before the 144,000 witnesses are sealed. Please help me with a different understanding of these two issues. I'm searching the scriptures to show myself approved, but this is where it has led me so far. Well, a couple of things. One is I think you should listen carefully to my Revelation series, because the pre-wrath rapture, uh, as, you know, Marv Rosenthal, <clears throat> you know, tried to uh, postulate in 20, oh, actually 30 years ago, it's been 30 years now, when he came up with this position, I just think it's nonsense and there's no uh, substance to it, because clearly when you read Revelation chapter 6, even with the beginning of uh, you know, you, you've got uh, the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments. The seal judgments are all descriptive of the wrath of God, and they are descriptive of what takes place during the first half of the tribulation period because the sealed judgments perfectly mirror Revelation 24, uh, beginning around verse 3 all the way through verse 15, when Jesus speaks of an event known as the abomination of desolation that when that happens, there'll be unprecedented wrath that will come with um, the uh, trumpet and the bold judgments. With that said, the wrath of God begins at the start of the tribulation. It's God's judgment 
uh, on Israel and on to bring them to repentance and on an unbelieving world. Uh, in reference to Second Thessalonians, it's not a difficult passage, and I have a message on this that you might want to listen to it, search the scriptures, but I appreciate your earnestness because you really want to understand this. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him. What's he talking about, our gathering together to him? He's talking about the rapture. Um, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> he specifically says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or dead, that you don't grieve like pagans, the rest who have no hope, because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the confession we make at baptism, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So, of course, when you die absent from the body, present with the Lord, your body's in the ground, but you're in, that is what is asleep, so to speak, and that God is going to raise it up. Um, but, and, and so it's a beautiful metaphor, sleep, uh, for death. And you see that in the gospels as well as in this, uh, epistolatory passage. Um, but the person inside the human body is home with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep because their spirits are in heaven and he's going to bring them back from heaven to reunite them in the body. And that's what he goes on to say, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, which is the essence of their question. What happens if you die, you know, before the coming of the Lord? Does that mean you'll miss, you know, the millennial reign of Messiah? They had all kinds of questions like that. And he says, no, you won't miss it at all because the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So actually the first to come out of the grave are those who've already gone home to be with Jesus. He's bringing their spirit back, going to reconnect it with the body in the ground. They'll rise first. And then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him. That's called the catching up. We'll be caught up. Uh, some people say, well, the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. Well, it's the word harpazo here in the Greek New Testament but in the Latin version of the Bible, which was used for approximately 1,200 years of church history, it's the word that we get our English word rapture from. So I don't care what you call it, the halparzo, the rapture. Everyone believes in a rapture. The question is the timing of the catching up. So we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together with him, to him, that is the rapture, that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. Why did they think maybe the day of the Lord had come? Well, for one, we know that it will be a time of great thalipsis. And thalipsis is a word, it's different from uh, the word, you know, trial. Sometimes we speak of trials and tribulations like they're synonyms. Well, they're not. All, all, all tribulations are trials, but not all trials are tribulations. The word thalipsis is used in reference to God's, um, uh, not God's wrath, but man's punishment or persecution that comes upon the church. And so Paul says, listen, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. Why would you want to result in ex rejoice or exult in, in tribulation or persecution? 
because tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about character and character brings about a certain hope that God's at work in your life, not to mention that the love of the Spirit has been poured out. So he is dealing here with people who are under great persecution. In fact, he's already mentioned that. So if you isolate chapter 2 from chapter 1, you'll get confused. He says here in chapter 1 and verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God. These are saints who are suffering greatly and the text specifically says for the kingdom. They are suffering, uh, they're considered worthy of this suffering for the kingdom. That's why they're suffering because they're Christians. They're not suffering because they have a toothache or they have cancer or the various trials that come on believers and unbelievers alike. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. And so again, here in chapter two, so think about this, the, the, the time of the tribulation that Jesus spoke of and the Olivet Discourse is going to be a time of awful suffering for believers and the revelation really uh, spells it out in incredible detail. It's a time of wrath for unbelievers, but it's a time of great thalipsis persecution for the believers who are alive for tribulation saints. And so they're thinking, maybe we misunderstood the Apostle Paul. Maybe our catching up is uh, after the tribulation period. Did we misunderstand you, Paul? Uh, Because we're under intense persecution. Is it that we're in the start of the tribulation? And again, it's like a rheostat that he eventually gets hotter and hotter and more intense. And so he says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, three things, three fake things, like a letter from Paul. Yeah, Paul, here's a new letter from Paul. No, it's not Paul's letter. How do we know? Paul says, I end every letter, as he tells the Galatians, with this particular mark, with this signature, so to speak. Uh, uh-oh, word of prophecy came. Well, you know, listen, the, the spirits of prophets are subject to one another, and we're to test the spirits to see if they be of God. So let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Uh, What will not come? Now, it will not come as an italics in the NASB, because that's not part of the original text. But most English texts have a rendering similar to that, because it's implied. Um, Sometimes um, when you read the Greek New Testament, it's crystal clear what he's speaking of. But when you put it into a receptor language, in our case in English, it might not be crystal clear. So to sometimes to smooth out the reading to make it grammatically correct from the Greek into English, but more often in order to elucidate the meaning of the Greek text, words are put in italics and they're not italicized for emphasis like the common present day use of italics but they're there to help us to see the clarity of what is written in the Greek New Testament. For it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord. Not the rapture, the day of the Lord. That's the nearest antecedent. 
it will not come. In other words, you can know you are not in the day of the Lord. And in the day of the Lord, you see, some people think, well, the day of the Lord is the second coming. It's not the second coming. The day of the Lord is a protracted period of time. And if you just uh, took out a concordance, and if you have a computer concordance, you can not only look up words, but phrases. And you did a study on the day of the Lord. And I think it's in my series on Thessalonians. I actually go through about 10 passages on the day of the Lord in the New Te- in, from the Old Testament. And it's a period of time that has bad and positive aspects to it. It actually mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts at sundown and goes through sundown the next day. So when does Sabbath start? Sabbath starts at sundown. And at different times of year, it's at different times. Uh, and there, you know, the Jews, I remember I was there one summer night at the wall and and they were waiting for Sabbath to begin. Well, when does, when does sundown start? They say when you can see the first, you know, bright star in the sky and then there's another sect of the orthodox saying you have to see two bright stars and another says three bright stars but you know you could you could type in in fact rick uh, google it for me when does sabbath start this friday and again you can go by official sundown charts and that's what most jews do today so if it's a cloudy night you can't see any stars and so for instance sabbath starts um this coming friday he, Rick's going to pull up a time here for me in a second, um, but my guess is it's around five something. But I don't, I don't know offhand when sunset is at that latitude. But here's the point: it, it starts, um, it starts in the shadows. It gets darker and darker and darker the day of the Lord, and then the sun comes up and it's bright and bright, and then it gets dark again. And so it's it's a it mimics a biblical day. And so the day of the Lord has some very dark sides to it, and then it has some very bright sides to it. So what time is it on uh, this week? Okay. This is uh, in New York City. It will begin, you want to start light your candles no. yeah, at, okay. at 536. Okay, in Jerusalem, um, I don't know when it is, but I'm going to, uh, Jerusalem, um, Sabbath, and what's this Friday? What's the date on this Friday? Uh, let's see. This Friday will be October 27th. October 27th. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, today is October 27th. Yeah. So it will be, uh, 20, uh, 31st. 31st. No, it will be the, the 30th. 30th. Uh-huh. 30th. Yeah. So of course the Jewish day goes from Friday to Friday. And so, um, it, it actually starts at four at 411. So they're on a different latitude than we are. But my point is, is that, um, it goes from sundown to sundown. And so the day of the Lord, it gets dark, it gets pitch black, it gets bright. And so during the tribulation, like a rheostat, going back to the first question that we were asked, uh, the wrath of God begins with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It begins with the first seal. That's all part of the wrath of the Lamb, according to Revelation chapter 6. And so it gets worse and darker and darker. And then Jesus comes back and the S-O-N and the prophet Malachi is likened to the S-U-N. And he rules and reigns for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, it gets dark again when Satan, who's been bound for a thousand years, is loosed. And the children of tribulation saints, some of whom did not respond to the Lord Jesus, will rebel this great multitude, and it gets dark again, and then we go into the eternal state where Jesus will light heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. 
Um, so it will not come the day of the Lord. You can know you're not in the day of the Lord. Why? Because the apostasy has not come. Now, there's always been apostasy in the church, uh, but this is articular. This is the apostasy. This is the apostasy of apostasies. I believe the seeds are being sown today. Yeah, they've been sown through the seeker-sensitive church, more uh, recently through the emergent church, and even more recently through the so-called woke church. This is all; These are all seeds of apostasy, seeds of evil that are taking people away from the authority of Scripture and using man-made methods and techniques to evaluate life and, and what we should be like as Christians. And this is going to lead to gross error and to an embracement of so-called you know, confessing Christians to the Antichrist. The true Christians will be removed, but then the uh, tribulation will come. And when the Antichrist comes, there will be true believers who will come to faith during the seven years, uh, and they will, for the most part, die. They'll be beheaded. And Jesus said no one would have survived during this period of time had he not put an end to it. They would have killed everyone. But the majority of the so-called Christians will apostatize. That's not happened yet. The seeds are being sown. But the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed. And the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called or object of worship. So that those are events that take place during the day of the Lord. So to think that the day of the Lord had come and that they were living in the tribulation was a gross mistake because the apostasy had not arrived. This mass turning away from Jesus of people who said they were Christians and now just openly reject him. And we're seeing this more and more in our day, but this is not the apostasy of apostasies, but it's being set up for that. I mean, even the Pope came out last week and said that same-sex unions were legitimate. That he's, he's an apostate. He's not a believer. He's a lost man. You should pray for his conversion. He needs to know Christ as his personal Savior. And even some of the cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church opposed him on that uh, because they, they know better whether they're born again or not. They, they know that that clearly is not what the Bible teaches. But there's a coming apostasy. There'll be this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. He's not here yet. So he is not saying our gathering together will not come until these three things happen. He's saying that the day of the Lord will not come, and that's the problem that he's addressing starting in chapter 1. You're not in the day of the Lord because the apostasy is not here. The man of lawlessness is not here as well. And so don't be disturbed from some message or some letter, like if it's from me, that that we're going to be here for the day of the Lord because we won't. All right, very good. Rhoda from Winchester, Massachusetts writes, The wife of our relatively new pastor, about two and a half years, is a woman in her late 30s. Each Sunday morning and evening, as well as midweek prayer, she she wears some sort of a head covering. She came from a church in upstate South Carolina where this teaching was presented and followed by the women of the assembly. Our pastor hasn't addressed this particular teaching from the Corinthians except to say that he won't make it an issue as it could be divisive. I don't know anyone else who has followed this teaching. I get confused because the pastor's wife won't wear any skirts or dresses. I prefer conservative clothing. I'm not sure what the biblical teaching is regarding this conservative matter regarding the covering of a woman's head during the worship service. As soon as the service is over, she takes it off. 
Thank you for your answer. Well, it's it's a it's a fair question, and it sounds to me like you have a pastor's wife who's really wanting to do what's pleasing to the Lord. I wouldn't agree to her conclusion that she has made from 1 Corinthians 11, at least in the culture in which we live in. Paul opens the chapter by saying, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In other words, follow me like I follow Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, if you've done any study on, you know, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and you know that the Father and the Son are equal, and yet the Father is described as the head of Christ, and Christ uh, submitted himself to the Father's will. And so while they're equal, they had different roles, just as each member of the Godhead has different roles. And so he's not dismissing that men and women are equal, but he is affirming that they have different roles. And so in the church, uh, the man is supposed to be the pastor, not a woman. In the home, the man is to be the head, not the woman. And there are some things, too, that only women can do in the church. So he says every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So he says, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. So this is an important critical issue, especially as it related to the first century church, because a head covering was a sign of a woman acknowledging that her husband was her head. And so some of the women had come to the conclusion, well, look, God affirms that we're equal. Galatians was the first book that Paul had written, and he affirms there's neither male nor female slave nor free, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul in saying that and affirming our equality is not dismissing the fact that there are still different roles that God has for men and for women. And so some may have taken a text like that. And so when they came into the worship service, uh, they, they just took it off to say, we're equal with our husband. And Paul said, no, that's a sign of, of, of rebellion because in that culture, it was an expression that you acknowledged your husband's headship. When I would go into um, Ukrainian churches or any of the churches in Eastern Europe, at least in the start of the late 90s, I think we made our first trip to Eastern Europe in 1998, you could look out across an auditorium and you could immediately see every woman which were single and which were married because every married woman had a head covering on. Now, with time, it's kind of like foot washing. Uh, Jesus said, hey, you should have washed one another's feet, and you're blessed if you do these things. No, the, the, the principle of being servants and caring for one another and seeing others is more important than ourselves 
is an unchanging principle, but the expression may be different. In that day, obviously, when someone walked through dusty roads or muddy streets, their feet would get dirty, and so when they arrived at the home of their guests, it was the honorable thing to do to get down and wash others' feet, to take care of them, to serve them in that way. And, of course, in the upper room that night, None of the disciples were engaged in serving one another. In fact, they're engaged, as Luke tells us, in the discussion as to who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so there's an eternal principle of servanthood, but there's a cultural expression. And I would say that that is true. Now, there are still some countries in the world where the head covering for a woman is still totally applicable because the culture carries the expression that it's a sign of submission to your husband. There are very few cultures in the world, even in Eastern Europe, uh, the head covering isn't totally gone, but it's almost gone because um, in these churches, they recognize that this was a cultural expression, but what is mandated is that you uh, honor your husband's headship in the home. And so he says, look, if you're not going to wear a head covering, why don't you just shave your hair off? Which um, is something that, you know, would be a disgraceful thing to do because he goes on to say that a woman's hair is her glory. And so a woman should distinctively look different from a man uh, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray with her hair uncovered? Uh, does not even nature itself teach you that a man, that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for her, or for her hair is given to her as a covering. So here's, here, here's the point, you know, by the way, let me just say parenthetically, one aspect of women today who reject the distinctive roles that God has made them to function in is in the lesbian community where women basically have haircuts that look like men. And I'm not saying that a woman can't have a short haircut, but it should look feminine. And if you look at a woman and she looks like a man, and of course in lesbian relationships, just like in male homosexual relationships, there's usually a, a the male partner and the female partner, so to speak, and the male partner cuts her hair super short, where the female so-called partner may have long hair. And that's just a disgraceful thing. We are erasing the distinctions between men and women that God has made. So I would say this. I think this pastor is wise. His wife has a conviction that this cultural expression still applies. And so she wears a head covering in the church. We have one woman in our church who wears a head covering on Sunday. And she comes, I think, from a Mennonite background. And so I have no problem with that. I would never make it an issue to her. For her, it's an issue of conscience, and she wants to wear a head covering. But the head covering, if it's a symbol that doesn't express reality, is meaningless. In fact, the idea of a Jew covering his head with a shawl, that comes almost three centuries after Christ walked on the earth. 
So, you know, people go to Israel today and they say, well, I want to get a prayer shawl and put it over my head. That aspect is actually in direct contradiction to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And Christ would not have covered his head with a shawl. Uh, That is a practice that comes into Judaism almost 300 years after Christ walked on the earth. But sometimes in these Christian movies where they picture Christ, he puts his head covering on and they're actually taking a later practice in Judaism and imposing it on the first century. Anyway, um, so leave her alone. Thank God she wants to please the Lord. And um, I would leave it at that. I think if you know, and my sense is, in light of what you've written here, is your pastor's not going to make it an issue, or he would have stood up in the pulpit and asked the women to wear head coverings, and he's not doing that. So that's a good thing. Yeah, and I can appreciate that because within the context of First Corinthians 11, which happens to be what we're studying in my ABF mm-hmm. this week, uh, that whole chapter is intended to address the disunity that was taking place in that congregation. Exactly. And here's, you've got this pastor, he's yep. actually trying to unify the congregation. That's exactly right. And that, and that was one of the marks of carnality in the church, is they had their little sects and groups, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, or the super spiritual, I'm of the Christ party. And, you know, and so you had all these little factions, and yeah, that's a mark of carnality, disunity. That's why Paul says that, people who are divisive in the church, they're walking like mere men. They're walking like unbelievers, because that's a mark of an unbeliever, Jude tells us, is uh, they, they create division. So, Sue from Beaufort just uh, emailed us. In Psalm 139, 17 and 18, is God thinking of us that much, or is it talking about our thoughts of God? I can't imagine us thinking about him that much. So is God thinking vast and precious thoughts of us that outnumber the grains of sand? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and again, I would just put it in the context. Uh, King David is uh, affirming the omnipresence and the omniscience of God in his life, and so he speaks of how God has searched him and knew him, that when he sat down, when he rose up, uh, that he understood um, his thoughts from afar, that he scrutinized his path in every way that he was intimately acquainted with all of his ways. In fact, he says, ever before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me and such knowledge is too wonderful. And then he goes on and he speaks not only of God's omniscience, but then his omnipresence that he could flee nowhere. If he made his bed in the grave, God would be there. If he went up into heaven, the Lord would be there. If he tried to cover himself with darkness, even the darkness is like light to the Lord. Um, In fact, his care is so intense. It starts from the moment of conception for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And by the way, God is the author of life. He didn't uh, weave together little blobs of flesh fetuses. He wove together babies, and the Bible teaches from the moment of conception, this is human life, and we have a party in America in their current platform that sanctions the death of little babies right up until the day before the child is born. You talk about wickedness. You talk about paganism and the Democratic Party. It's like we've never seen it before, and it is so brazen, so hateful, so murderous. I don't... I don't see how any thinking Christian 
could vote for someone who would sanction the tearing of a little baby from a womb limb by limb out of a sacred place where God has woven a baby together. You formed my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you. I'm fearfully and wonderful made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it well. I wasn't hidden from you. So then he says, how precious also are your thoughts um, to me, O God. What thoughts? God's thoughts about us. They're precious to King David, who's writing this song, this, this song, this psalm, which is what a psalm is. It's a song. Uh, they sang these things. Uh, and it's amazing the power of music. Um, some of my granddaughters uh, sang me a song recently from a play called Hamilton. I said, well, how, how, did, you, how did you learn those words? You just sang them beautifully. Well, we just listened to it a few times. And uh, we could sing it. And that's the power of music, for good or for evil. Uh, You can instill godly music in your heart, uh, and it sticks with you. You try to memorize a verse of Scripture, it's difficult. You you sing a song a few times, and it just kind of sticks with you. That's one of the powers of music, and that's why they sang it. And so David says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance in your book were all written the days that were ordained even before there was one. And so how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, that God is moment by moment superintending our life from the moment of conception throughout our life, even to the point of our death. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, and then he goes on in this imprecatory psalm, mini psalm of sorts of what God would do to the unbelieving wicked who don't acknowledge this and disdain God. But then David, in humility, brings his own heart down to where uh, he needs to bring it, where we all need to bring it every day. Because while we may be redeemed and regenerate and understand things about God that the pagan does not. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Great question. Let's go to the next. Okay. Mary from Hardyville writes, since the pandemic, my church has not been holding any services, but I faithfully listen to you. My question is this. I'm holding my tithe, which is now up to about $2,500. Would it be okay to give this money to someone I know is in need, or should this be given directly to my local church? It's a good question. So, Mary from Hardyville, I would encourage you to maybe take <clears throat> excuse me, my course on handling money. It's not for the faint. It's a long course, but there is a whole section just on giving. So I deal with stewardship, what the Bible says about stewardship. We're stewards, which means we're going to give an account someday, not just for 10%, but all 100% of how we used our money. We talk about debt. We talk about saving. We talk about giving. We talk about planning. Uh, So these are in investing, and these are all important things. But no, the tithe belongs to the local church. And I go through a number of passages. Now, why you're holding your tithe, I don't understand. Because I'm assuming that while your church may be not meeting physically uh, due to the uh, virus, and some churches have chosen to do that, Uh, most of our African-American churches in Beaufort County are closed, especially since they are a high-risk group. 
Um, and then some churches have limited, you know, opening in terms of um, what you can come. If you come to Community Bible Church, we practice social distancing and we wear masks until we get to the seat. Um, once you're in the seat and your row behind you is about eight feet away, um, you don't have to wear your mask unless you want to, and you're free to wear it the whole time. So we took not a no seat, no mask policy or no mask at all, but kind of an in-between policy where we're trying to protect people who are vulnerable, especially the African-American members of our church and our older adults who wouldn't come and unsaved people who would not come young and old. I've had young couples say, Hey, thank you. We're a little apprehensive about coming to church here today because we didn't know if you were going to have a no mass policy, but we're, we're, we're glad that, that you had some care for the people who would visit only to find out later that they're not even saved people. And can you imagine the opportunity we would have missed not to mention, of course, yesterday a new study came out speaking about the permanent heart damage that some people are going to have to live the rest of their lives with if they get COVID. So, you know, God willing, this thing will be gone before too long. I hate these masks. I do. I'm just being honest, but it's not about me. It's about uh, people who need to know Christ and God's people who want to come to church. And if you've got this attitude, well, you know, these are just, you know, people who are taking away our freedoms and they don't, look, I'm sure there may be, there's some evil motives in some people's hearts for wearing masks and trying to mandate it on other people. But my, my thought is, is I want to protect those who are coming and I want unsaved people to come. And if someone comes without a mask, they're still welcome. We don't have like mask police at our church. With, with all this said, your tithe belongs to your local church, and that's where it should go. But why you've held it, I'm assuming the expenses of the church still goes on. Someone has to cut the lawn, and um, I'm assuming your pastor, that you have a full-time pastor, and he's uh, working and visiting people and preparing messages that he's probably doing online. So I'm, I'm assuming all those things, and if that is the case— then you should be giving to your local assembly because that's where your tithe belongs. So don't hold on to it. Give it. It doesn't belong to community Bible church or to an individual. It belongs to your local church. Now, if you have something above the tithe, what we might call an offering that you want to give to, you know, Operation Christmas Child or, or you just want to give as a free will offering to someone in need, great, great. But the tithe belongs to the local church, the first 10%. All right. Bill from Stevens City, Virginia, writes, By the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel uh, 46, we see that the animal sacrifices are reinstated. This seems strange to me since the sacrifice is at the millennial temple during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Jesus has already died, been buried, and resurrected as firstborn from the dead. He is our true atonement. He is our eternal propitiation for our sins for those who believe on his name. During this time, Jesus will be here on earth and governing. Can you help me understand why God, through the prophet Ezekiel, declares animal sacrificial worship is again initiated and attention is not directed solely upon Jesus Christ? So you mentioned Ezekiel uh, 46, but really the whole pericope starts in chapter 40 and goes through chapter 48. 
And the instruction that Ezekiel is given is very similar to the kind of instruction that Moses was given for building the tabernacle that was later expressed in the Solomonic Temple. So there's a there's been different temples. Remember, initially, there was a tabernacle, which was kind of like a portable tent, and it would travel as the Jews traveled. And eventually there came a time when David said, I'm living in, in a house and God's living in a tent. I'd like to build a permanent structure. And God specified specifically, because God knew all this would happen, the place, the exact location, we call it the Temple Mount. And that's where it was built. And uh, so and there was great detail in terms of how it should be done. Well, God gives this detailed explanation, pages of it. And it's not by accident. And if the detail was intended just to be symbolic, then the symbols are never explained. But there's a purpose behind the detail, just as there was for the tabernacle in the first two temples. So there's no textual hermeneutical reason for saying this is non-literal, this coming temple. Uh, That would be a gross error of judgment. Um, And so clearly, uh, this is an actual literal temple that, that God is going to have built now, it will not in any way take away sin. So understand that right off. Um, the writer of the Hebrews affirms that, you know, there's, <coughs> excuse me, that the, the blood of goats and bulls can never remove sin. Um, but, but this is a real temple, and the burden on us to determine how it fits into God's plan doesn't change the reality. We may not initially understand, well, why do you have this temple? But you just don't say, well, Oh, well, it mustn't be here. Look, that, that's, that's really to misrepresent God's word. I had a family left the church over this because I mentioned, and I wasn't alone. Um, in fact, uh, virtually, um, you know, David Jeremiah, who's on our station, John MacArthur and Charles Stanley and Adrian Rogers, who used to be on our station before he died, and all these speakers, Billy Graham, and they all believed in a literal millennial temple where there would be sacrifices. But none of them taught, nor have I, that they somehow take away sin. They don't. Christ's um, finished work on the cross paid for sin. But there's a function. I think the the millennial temple will serve as a daily reminder of what Jesus did. And so there's great instruction. If you've ever done a study on the tabernacle or the temple, wow, it just blows your mind in terms of the detail and what the details actually pictured concerning the work of Christ. And so why would God want people to come to a millennial temple? Because there's going to be people, one, who are going to learn much of Scripture about God's holiness and all that the Old Testament temple symbolized. Much of it is going to be replicated in the New Testament. But there's going to be unbelievers who, during the millennial reign of Christ, are born and they have to make a decision for Christ. And so this will be an evangelistic tool. It will be symbolic, much like the Lord's table looks back at what Jesus accomplished for us. In the same way, the millennial temple will look back at what Jesus did. And so, and I should say too, that Ezekiel is not alone in this. There's other prophets of in the scripture that affirm uh, this coming temple. Isaiah 56, 66 
those two chapters, Jeremiah 33, Zechariah 14, these are all prophets that speak of a coming millennial temple where there will be animal sacrifices. And again, it will be a painful reminder of sin because there will be sin during the millennial reign of Christ of people who enter in their unregenerate bodies, the tribulation saints, and then the children born to them. And even all of them will not receive Jesus as Lord. So most premillennial scholars would agree that the purpose of the animal sacrifices uh, during the millennial kingdom is just memorial, only memorial, just like the Lord's Supper again is a reminder of the death of Christ to us as believers today. The animal sacrifices will be a similar reminder, but with far more detail, God will show all that Jesus did and how it was prophesied and predicted and pictured in the tabernacle and the temple and then in the coming millennial temple as well. All right, very good. I think we've got time for one more. Frank from Richmond Hill, Georgia. What is your interpretation of Daniel 12, 2, where it says many of those who sleep? Why do you think that the Holy Spirit had Daniel write the word many instead of just saying those who sleep? Well, um, the term many is a Hebrew word, and and I cover this, I think, I know I covered it in at least one service. My challenge sometimes is when I preach two services, and there was a time I was doing three services. In fact, there was a time I was doing four services where I'd go to Charleston on Sunday night. Um, but in one of those messages, I remember covering it. Now, whether it made it to the final tape, I don't know, because I have to pick a service every Sunday. But I point out that the term many can be a term that refers to all. Uh, maybe uh, in your mind, you would at least know Romans five fifteen and 16, where the term many is used for all. And so this is not an uncommon usage of the word rabbiim in, in Hebrew, or for that matter, the use of the word in the Greek New Testament. So no one would debate, for instance, this example in Romans 5, for the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, speaking of Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So he's talking about that through one act, Adam's act, there was effect on the many, and the many there is a reference to, to all. So now it is true that I think the focus of this passage is not on the timing of the resurrection, but the kind of resurrection, because um, there is an order of resurrections in Scripture, Christ and that small handful after he rose, the rapture, tribulation, and Old Testament saints that are mentioned here, and then the resurrection of uh, the lost at the end of the millennial reign of Christ at the great, great white throne judgment. So with that said, some take the many as, oh, you know, many meaning are saved and many are lost. But I don't think that's the, the use of the word. I think he, he's using the word many, rabbaim, in terms of all the people. All are going to be raised either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. And Jesus affirmed that same principle in John chapter 5. Hey, we're just a week away from the election. I hope you will vote on November 3rd. Well, we're in the studio this